This podcast contains detailed descriptions of violence and murder and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. The material discussed is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to those affected by the crime. A Brisbane girl was violently bashed and strangled while walking home at night. The killer has never been caught. I know who killed Betty Shanks. 19th of September, 1952. There's been a shocking sex murder at Wilston. 400 police are now involved in a major murder manhunt. Although top investigators have worked ceaselessly to track down Miss Shank's killer, no trace of him has been found. This is season two of Mapping Evil with Mike King, the cold case investigator, a four-part series that delves deep into Queensland's most gruesome and longest-running cold case. Mike has been catching killers and tracking down serial predators for over three decades. He's a world-renowned criminal profiler and he's gone on to use geographic information systems, data and mapping technology to become a world-leading investigator. Not to mention famous author and YouTube superstar. When I saw the body, I realised just how horrible the whole thing was. She'd been kicked or bashed so hard in the side of the face that one of her teeth had dislodged from its socket, emerged through the cheek on the other side of her face and landed on the grass. Betty Shanks was brutally murdered as she strolled along a quiet street in her own neighbourhood. Her story is our story and she deserves justice. One of the first things she said to me was, I know who killed Betty Shanks. He did kill her, he did kill her. There's no other answer. I'm Tori Shepard, journalist and slightly obsessed true crime fan. My dad killed Betty Shanks. Just to let you know, where possible, the voices you'll hear are of those directly involved in the case. But in some instances, actors' voices have been used. The murderer could have been lurking in the shadows at the murder spot and suddenly attacked the deceased as she walked past. Episode 1, Murdering Betty. Terrain of Terror. The murder of Betty Shanks sent shockwaves across Brisbane. She was 22, this pretty confident young woman. I'm looking at her now and she's got sort of curly hair and a bit of a cheeky look in her eyes. In the 1950s, when Betty was killed, Brisbane was a city of less than half a million people. They didn't even lock their doors at night, not even on the darkest nights. The murder of Betty Shanks on a moonless September night, spring in Australia, is often described as the day the city lost its innocence. You didn't lock doors, you didn't close windows, you went out and left the house wide open. Uh, you went to the pictures at night and walked home on your own. And that was a friend of Betty's, Billy Lake. She lived down the street from Betty and was on the same tram as her on that fateful night. The next morning at 5.39am, an off-duty policeman, Alex Stewart, discovered her battered body in the front garden of his neighbour's house on the corner of Thomas and Carberry Street, just 400 yards from Betty's own home. From the photos I've seen, and I'm looking at them now, they are horrific. The injuries are just shocking. In the reports of the time, they say she was strangled. She was kicked with such force she had a fractured jaw, lacerated cheek, her teeth were found metres from her body 
and there was a pattern mark on her forehead, which... Mike, we are going to get to this later because this is part of this huge mystery that has endured for seven decades now and it could be a hidden clue to how she was initially attacked. Now, Mike King, I, I was a police reporter. I've been to crime scenes and it is genuinely shocking to see the force that must have been behind this attack. Her arms are akimbo. There's, you know, her belongings kind of scattered. Mike, what do we know? Well, you're absolutely right. This was an incredibly violent crime scene. And the exciting news, I think, is that we've uncovered a new lead that we're going to talk about a little bit in in a moment. But first, let's talk about those crime scenes. And I hope you caught what I just said, Tori. I'm going to say it again, crime scenes. Mm. I'd also like to more closely examine some of the geography and see if we can tighten down why Betty Shanks became a victim. I'm, I'm really intrigued by some of the behaviors in this case, and I think we've uncovered some things that are going to be worth considering. And here's what senior detective Abe Duncan had to say in a 2004 interview with Crime Watch. I recall seeing some, some uh, smudges of blood on the fence. Uh, I suppose there is always the possibility that it may have been a, a random sex attack with a robbery murder, but I don't really think so. It is unfortunate that none of the persons who heard the screams or cries for help left their homes to seek the cause of such evidence of distress. That was Detective Senior Sergeant Norm Bauer, who was a central figure during the Betty Shanks investigation. You're going to hear a lot more from him throughout this series. It is quite probable that had they done so, they would have seen the offender as the injuries inflicted on her indicated that her assailant must have remained at the scene attacking her for some time after she screamed out. I read like maybe seven people heard Betty scream on the night that she was murdered and Marjorie Hill, who lived at the property where Betty's body was later discovered. So, Mike... Brisbane, Queensland, you know, it's hot, it's humid. They have these homes called Queenslanders, which have like a big veranda, like a porch. And before everyone had air conditioning, sometimes people would sleep outside and, you know, you'd need something to keep the mozzies away. Anyway, Marjorie Hill was in this veranda. It was called a sleep out. And at about 9.35, she heard two pretty loud cries. No words, just the screams sleep out. You you captivated me with that one. You know, when we look at these locations where, in this case, the actual murder occurred, it's clear that Betty put up one heck of a fight. It's something that I believe her attacker really didn't expect to have happen. And her courageous fight it distracted the killer who became disorganized, in my opinion. I actually think that there were probably multiple crime scenes where this attack occurred, Tori, and I want to just kind of explore that just for a second. One was undoubtedly on the exterior of the property line where she was discovered, and another where her body lay. And I'm going to be really interested in a closer examination to determine if she was actually thrown over the fence, like some have theorized, or if perhaps she was trying to elude or attack her. And I think it's going to be really important to understand that, that the actual assault itself can provide us real invaluable insight into the attacker. Again, think about it as different crime scenes. We'll talk a little more about that as time goes on, but, but there are three 
primary sites that we're going to look at as we talk about crime scenes and go through our discussion today. So if you're asking yourself if the geography really matters, I think absolutely it's the bottom line and it helps us understand more of what was going on that day and it helps us to somehow tie this killer to Betty Shanks. And Mike, this is your thing. You walk us through the scenes, you take us there. Let us walk in the footsteps of Betty Shanks. Well, yeah, I mean, let's talk about it. There are kind of three primary locations that we look at when we talk about crime scenes. And sometimes I think the public just focuses on where the actual assault in Betty's case occurred. But we have these locations. First would be the initial contact site, Tori, where the attacker and Betty come into contact with each other. She may not have even known that this initial contact happened. It could have been the stereotypical guy in the dark corner with a trench coat and dark glasses peering from the shadows at her. But somehow they come into contact with each other and this predator focuses on her and starts to follow her. Now, that tells us a lot about behaviors that are going on because Betty doesn't look like she's in a hurry. She doesn't look like she's frightened when the, when we look at the behaviors of her walking down that street. She's smart. She has a lot of street sense. So we see her crossing over from one side of the street to the other because there's lighting on the street corners and, and it makes it a much safer way for her to walk home. The second place we look at is the actual place where this crime occurred, where this suspect finally assaults her. I believe it's in a blitz style attack where she is just suddenly pummeled and assaulted. And then the question becomes, is there kind of a secondary second crime scene? And, and that is, did the assault occur outside of the fence, which I think the evidence supports that it happened outside of that corner property. And then Betty somehow ends up inside the fence. Was she placed there by the offender? Was she thrown over the fence by the offender? Or was it actually an artifact of her trying to escape from this predator in the course of this fight? And it had to have been a brutal fight when you examine the physical evidence that's there. So then that brings us to the third spot, which becomes kind of intriguing because that third spot we call the disposal site. And so again, did Betty flee over the fence and try to escape her attacker who captured her once again and finally finishes taking her life? Or is it actually a disposal site where the offender places her to maybe make it easier for him to escape without detection or to further assault her? All of these things geographically become incredibly important and when compiled against the behavior starts to paint a real picture of this predator. Particularly vicious murder. Particularly vicious. Oh, it was ferocious. It was a ferocious attack. Teeth were out, bashing, bruising, horrible. So, Tori, instead of pursuing the whodunit, which is what we always want to do, I want to do something a little different. And it's something I recommend to investigators on cold cases. And that is, let's learn a little bit more about who Betty Shanks is. We call this victimology or the, the study of the victim. And think about it. I mean, this is a beautiful, intelligent young woman who's somebody that any of us would have been honored to call a friend. So why on earth does a 
brutal attack occur on someone like this. You know, I, I learned a great deal from just listening to an old friend of Betty's named Billy Lake. They lived near each other, and she shared some really fond memories she had of her. Ladylike, quiet, genteel. Used to talk about, you know, movies we'd been to, what we were doing at college, uh, what we'd bought, you know, new handbag, new blouse or something like that. Just girly things. And Mike, it was such a shocking murder that we actually can learn quite a lot about Betty Shanks from the reports at the time and, of course, from her friends. So she went to the University of Queensland. She did an arts course there. She did honours in psychology. She was successful. She was confident. She was popular. She had a lot of friends. She may or may not have had a boyfriend. Again, there was so much coverage of this case that there were rumours at some times that she was involved with somebody. Otherwise, possibly not that interested in boys. We might talk about that a bit more. But she was a very keen student. She worked with the Department of the Interior, which is like a mega department as we would see it now. It covered a lot of different areas within the government. So really like a solid public service job. She was politically engaged. She was smart. And on that night, she'd just been to a lecture. So, you know, late at night, that's what she did when she finished work and she took the tram home. So, Mike, on the fatal night, she's returning home from this lecture. She gets to the Grange tram terminus. It's a pretty short walk home. In the terminology of the day, it was about 400 yards, which in Australia talk is about 365 metres, so not very far at all. But she, she never made it. So, Mike, you're the detective. You've got decades looking at these cold cases and grisly crime scenes. Talk us through what you think happened at the crime scene or scenes. You know, Tori, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that policing has evolved a great deal in the last 70 years. But even with the evolution, a lot of things remain constant. I, I mean, things like the importance of timelines and, and like you've indicated, crime scenes. Now, today, we'd use GIS to examine information that was collected from surveillance cameras that are on businesses or those that are found on front porches of homeowners. But we'd access all this data from these mobile devices, and it would give us an idea, including data from the victim or, or suspects when we know who they are, about where they were, e even information like body biometrics. But we can't forget how important it would be to also geographically profile Betty and any of the potential suspects in their movements. I mean, things like where would the offender hide in order to surprise Betty with a blitz-style attack? Or, or where might an attacker surveil her? That location where he's looking for either this targeted or opportunistic victim. Geography plays a much bigger role than we may have ever before imagined. Mike, it's so fascinating. And because we've talked so much about geography and data, and because I keep picturing Betty Shanks, which, trust me, is not really a healthy thing to do a lot of the time. I picture that walk from the terminus to her home. I keep thinking about what it would look like now. You should be picked up 
on CCTV at the terminus. There might be people snapping her in the background with their mobile phone. She'd walk past a house and they have, you know, those doorbell cameras you can get now that might have might have snapped her. It feels like she would have been tracked every second of the day and almost as though, I mean, it sometimes feels like you're almost flying blind looking at what it was like back then. But that's not quite right, is it? There's still a lot of work we can do even in what seems like, I guess, the technological dark age. Yeah, yes, there's a lot that we could do with the limited amount of information that we have. But just imagine the amount of data that's sitting in those police files in the basement of those police departments that can be digitized and then put into this uh, geographic perspective where we can really analyze and understand what was going on, perhaps force us to ask questions that we might not have asked otherwise if we were only looking at it in some kind of a tabular form. And Mike, this is why you are the king of the cold cases. And I just had a flashback to season one where we talked about you solving the case of King Tut. I mean, you wrote a book about that, right? Exactly. And isn't that funny? I I oftentimes think about that. You know, Tutankhamun was 3,200 years ago. I mean, King Tut, that's got to be the coldest case there ever was. You know, sometimes we think, oh, this case is, in Betty's case, 70 years old. There can't be anything possible that we can put together. But that is so far from the truth. As we get out and we understand the behaviors because human behavior is the same today as it was 70 years ago. Now, there are obviously different nuances, but this mentality of predators to, that hide, how they hide, how they select their victims, how victims respond, or what Betty's daily activities were like and how she got from point A to point B, all of those things can be geographically examined and start to really paint a picture of what was going on on that fateful night. These kinds of investigations are always really interesting because you start to think about whether this is an opportunistic crime or whether it's a targeted event where someone really planned this thing out and planned the location that it was gonna happen. It appears in looking at this evidence from a behavioral perspective and forensically that it probably was not targeted or if it was, it just happened almost minutes before the offender identified Betty and decided to take her as a victim. But as she walks down the street again, we see this interesting behavior where we believe she crosses over the street as she reaches an area where it's really dark. It's in a vacant lot area that causes her enough concern that she crosses over. Now, did she cross over because she was approaching someone and that made her nervous or that she identified someone behind her following her and it made her nervous? Either way, she crosses the street and gets to where it's more well lit. And then, of course, this blitz-style attack happens. It's really important for investigators in these kinds of investigations to kind of vicariously roll in the dirt, so to speak. I love this phrase, Mike, roll in the dirt, like get into it and put yourself there, right? Yeah, yeah, you do. You have to go there and experience the temperature outside, the the amount of humidity, what the darkness feels like, and just walk in that area and, and sense what Betty would have sensed as she's walking along. We have to take these traditional forms of evidence that we're used to looking at, like blood spatters or physical damages, and we have to just kind of put them on a shelf for a short season, Tori, while we look at the case from a 
behavioral standpoint. And as we do that, we recognize that then comes this floodgate of information from our own senses that help us to start to theorize based on facts that we're uncovering. Although top investigators have worked ceaselessly to track down Ms Shank's killer, no trace of him has been found. Detectives are still hopeful, however, that someday they will receive information which will furnish a clue to the man's identity. Within a few weeks of the killings, police were receiving inquiries worldwide as detectives sought persons who had left Australia, including interviewing sailors who had left ports on ships. It was the biggest manhunt in Queensland's history. We know that in this case, there were people who came forward even confessing responsibility and law enforcement had to exclude them from the investigation. They put everything they had into this case. This is what the commissioner in Brisbane had to say four days after Betty's murder. We will never give up. All available men would be engaged in the hunt for the murderer of Betty Shanks until an arrest was made. Justice must be done in this case. We will never give up. This was a brutal and cowardly crime and I can promise the public that the murderer will not escape if we can help it. This killer will be hounded relentlessly. 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 Oh, Mike, the red herrings, I think, are really interesting. Like, in a newsroom for a newspaper, which is where I, you know, have worked for many years, you just get so many people calling in with information. You get people ringing in saying, I did it, or I know who did it, and you get flooded. It's like a fire hose, and a lot of it is false information. So I can't even imagine how much those police we're getting in terms of people ringing in. It's like when there's such a big story like this, people want to be a part of it. And so they're like just, you know, stretching everything they can to somehow insert themselves in the story. So I, I think we'll talk a bit more about the red herrings and the various rumours at the time. But let's get back to what we know for sure. So we know the tram got to the terminus, stop 28, Days Road, 9.32pm. People had seen her, people were aware of her movements up till 9.32 p.m. But no one saw her after that, except for whoever it was that killed her. That's right, Tori. And you know, one of the best known detectives in the 1950s in the Brisbane area was Detective Senior Sergeant Norm Bauer. I was really captivated by a comment he made during the murder inquiry about not hearing any fearful shouts or screams near the actual terminus. This may indicate one of two things. Uh, either that the deceased was met at the terminus by someone she knew and was delayed there speaking to that person, or that person walked with her to the spot where she was murdered. On the other hand, the murderer could have been lurking in the shadows at the murder spot and suddenly attacked the deceased as she walked past. It would appear that there have been two attacks on the deceased. This theory is supported by the fact that the deceased panties were saturated with urine, indicating that the deceased had experienced acute fear or pain while wearing them. Uh, there was only a small amount of blood staining on the underwear, which could have been caused after they were removed by the blood spurting from the deceased's face when she was being kicked or struck with something. I mean, this is all happening in the 1950s in suburban Brisbane. It's, it's a typical neighborhood with parks, 
a post office, cafes. I mean, this is this is hometown Australia. It, it isn't a violent, seedy place, and nobody could have ever imagined that a horrible murder like this could happen in their backyard. And, Mike, there's also a claim from Detective Sergeant Chandler, who was the first detective on the scene. He thought there was no way Betty's attacker could be identified because, well, he kind of thought his superiors had bungled the case. Uh, His words, not mine. It was not long, however, before several senior officers from the CIB arrived at the scene, uh, obviously expecting a quick arrest, and they rode roughshod over those who were painstakingly checking on available clues at the scene. If ever a murderer was protected, this was one. That was really interesting to me as well, and I found it interesting that Sergeant Chandler later theorized that the crime scene was staged. In a book that he wrote later in his life, Chandler stated that the offender made the crime scene look like it was a sexual assault and a robbery, noting the contents of Betty's purse had been strewn across the lawn, with her clothing pushed and pulled in a way that would support that the body was sexually assaulted. But you know, I'm only agreeing with Chandler to a degree. I I don't think this was about robbery and I really don't think it was about sexual assault. Yet I recall one newspaper headline that called this a shocking sex murder. In my opinion, this could have been the ultimate red herring. Think about this, Chandler went on to say, if ever a murder was protected, this is one. I don't know that I believe that there was any cover-up, and I'm not sure I'm comfortable with claiming it was a sexual assault or a robbery. Just as unnerving as this might be for a community, if somebody's trying to minimize these kinds of crimes in the public's eye, I don't think they'd say there's a sexual predator or a robber running around in the neighborhood. It just doesn't make sense to me. Here's senior detective Abe Duncan speaking about the doctor as a suspect in this case. I still have a theory, first advanced by Ted Chandler, about a possibility which existed at the time and which which I believe was never properly followed up, uh, which may well have resulted in, in some sort of success. In any case, let's put it down this way, that that's one of the disappointments of my service, the unsolved murder of Betty Shanks. What I really think, Tori, is that perhaps the investigators came up with a theory before they had facts that were there to support what the theory was. And you've heard me say it over and over again as I quote Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who penned that really cool phrase as he was speaking for Sherlock Holmes in the book, A Scandal in Bohemia. He says, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist the facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Oh, that's so true, Mike. And one of the facts in this case was mentioned by Detective Chandler. Remember, he wrote in his report that he'd noticed Betty Shanks's watch had stopped at 9.53pm and that coincided with that time frame where several people reported hearing screams in the area. At least five people heard those screams around that time and maybe as many as seven. It's facts like this that lead to solid theories in my book, Tori, and I'm really hoping in this episode that we can get closer to identifying Betty Shank's killer. I mean, her family, quite frankly, deserved to see this woman get justice after 70 years. I agree, Mike. It's amazing that 
seven decades and we still haven't got any closer, although you were giving us that tantalising hint earlier about a possible new lead. I'm sure we'll come back to that. All right, let's go back to what we know about Betty's last movements. Let's go back to, as you say, the facts. And hey, listeners, if you really want to visualise this, you can go to mappingevil.com.au and there is, you can literally walk her steps and you can see what we're talking about. It will take you back to you know, 1952 Brisbane and you can see where, where she went, where she crossed the road, like Mike was talking about. So she gets off the tram. It's at the Grange Terminus. It's 9.32. September 1952. She's walking home. Her home's on Montpelier Street. On that same tram was a Mrs Osborne who walked along the same path a bit before Betty. She said she heard nothing. This is important because there were reports at the time from Clarice Ansel. Now, her husband was in a doctor's surgery nearby. Sometime between 8.15 and 8.45, she saw a man she said was restless. He was pacing to and fro. She described him as tallish, well-built, looked like he was waiting for someone. And also, he walked halfway across the street and peered into the back of her car. So Clarice Ansel and her kids are sitting in the car and he comes and peers in before turning on his heels and walking away. Understandably, she got chills up her spine from that. She noticed he was nearly six feet tall, very square-shouldered, round-faced, good head of hair, well-brushed back, wearing a light brown double-breasted suit. So she was quite observant. Clarice Ansel. I mean, what an incredible uh, description that she provided here. So here is this unknown man in a brown suit. And I don't know about you, Tori, but this one has really captured my Mm. attention. This seemingly well-dressed man in the suit continues to haunt me to this day since I heard about this. I think we need to dig deeper into this person. I mean, is it possible that he's responsible for this horrible crime? And should this man in the brown suit be added to some of the other theories of people who might have killed Betty Shanks? And Tori, how do we somehow reconcile the suspects of the past? An ex-soldier, a a case of mistaken identity. Uh, Was Betty Shanks a case of mistaken identity and she was actually not the intended victim for this predator? Who, Who knows? Oh, Mike, you know, I can so clearly picture this man in the brown suit now. I can't picture his face, but I can picture this guy sort of shuffling across the road. But then there was also a married doctor who was rumoured to be having an affair with Betty who committed suicide a couple of days after the murder. There was the off-duty police officer. There were reports that maybe he hit her on a motorbike and threw her body over the fence. And then there was a suspicious man who got into a taxi at 10.40 that night, so just over an hour after she got off the tram, who had blood on his clothes. So we're not short of suspects, Mike. (laughs) No, and the blood on your clothing is, in police terms, a tip or a lead. I think we've really uncovered some interesting angles that our listeners are going to want to learn more about in the next episode. And I think it's time to start unmasking each of these possible suspects once and for all, including one in particular that seems really compelling to me. Mike, that was quite the tease to end on. And listeners, fear not, this is a four-part series and you can actually listen to them all right now and find out just what Mike King is hinting at. 
I know who killed Betty Shanks. If you found any content in this podcast distressing, help is available. Call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have any information about unsolved crimes, contact Crime Stoppers. They're on 1800 333 000 or crimestoppers.com.au. Research for this episode included reading through media reports which we sourced through Trove Archives and Ken Blanche's book, Who Killed Betty Shanks? We also watched a 2004 episode of Channel 9's Crime Watch, from which you heard interviews with senior detective Abe Duncan and Betty's friend Billy Lake. And of course, we have to give a huge thank you to author and historian Ted Dews for being so generous with his time and sharing his research about Betty's murder. If you're interested in learning more about Betty's story, we recommend you read the third edition of Ted's book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks. There's a link to where you can get a copy of the book on the Mapping Evil website. Another big thank you goes out to the Queensland Police Museum for access to their archives, including historical images from the scene and information about the case. The museum is open to the public and actually has a display dedicated to this very case. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepherd, and Mike King. Production and sound designed by Fig Media with support from Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Tell Brown Creative. Our supervising producer is Kim Douglas. Our executive producer is Raquel Jackson. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia. Esri Australia.